Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Trisha Yearwood, and you're tuned to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with Bill McLaughlin. Before we turn to Bill and his guests, I just want to give a shout out to the entire Furniture Today team and remind you that when there's something exciting to announce, you'll read about it first in Furniture Today. And now, here's Bill McLaughlin and On the Record. Welcome to On the Record. I'm Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. My guest this week is Warren Cornblum, CEO of Shadow Branding Group a veteran of such companies as Toys R Us, Rooms to Go, and Serta Simmons, someone with a long experience in the industry and lots to talk about. Warren, welcome. Thanks for joining me this morning. Hey, Bill. It's great to be here. Thank you. So um, I don't want to give away too much, but you're going to be speaking at the Furniture Today betting conference in a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, we people will have to tune in for the, the real scoop. But uh, can you just kind of, for folks... Who, uh, who want a little preview or want to understand what they would learn, um, can you just give us a kind of a 10-second preview of what to, people can expect? Uh, sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny time that we're living in uh, as things are evolving so much. Um, the original uh, topic that uh, Dave Perry and I had worked on was uh, it's time for more out-of-the-box thinking, which is not to say we're going to move the mattress business uh, out of the box, but what can we learn from the disruptive uh, segment with you know, folks like Casper and Helix and Lisa and Tuft and Needle um, that shook up the betting industry by focusing on consumer needs and consumer journey to purchase? That was the original intent and still will be a lot of what I talk about. But clearly, um, when we spoke about that early in the year, times were very different. And uh, as each week goes by, times are all continue to be very different. So. Um, I have a feeling I'll be doing a lot of my final thinking um, right up until the minute that I uh, that I well, I'm going to say take the stage, but I, I guess I take the computer screen um, because we're doing it virtually. You may have to retitle it. Who blew up my box? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and would you stop on? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> this isn't a case of moving the cheese. This is a case of uh, stepping on the cheese and uh, obliterating it. So, well, you know, I think I think also apropos of the conversation that you know we're having in terms of general home furnishings, general consumerism. I mean, you know, at, at the end, I'm such a firm believer that we can't force feed people anymore. It's really about what they're feeling, what they're going through, and boy, oh boy, I don't think certainly in my lifetime there's ever been a period where that's as fluid as it is right now. Um, and I, I think you know, mattresses for sure as a category, but the the entire retail industry is going through such upheaval because of things that we don't control, which I, I think the first time ever. It's certainly to this extent, right? I mean, I think we both had long careers, and I don't know about you, but I have never seen anything like this in uh, in my 30 years covering retail. So, No, I think it's a generational thing. And, you know, the, the news tells us that all the time, too. It was the last time, 19, whatever, 18, 20, whatever it was. Um, you know, again, it's just, um, there's just a cloud living you know, in varying degrees over people. Um, that's obviously affecting not only how they live, think, but how they well. Well, why don't we take a minute to talk a little bit about um, your career? I mean, you started out, um, started your own ad agency before you were 30 and uh, ended up working at a major advertising firm in New York after you sold that. 
Um, and then we're brought in at a very high level at Toys R Us. Um, again, brought in as Chief Strategy Officer at Rooms to Go, a very interesting title. You don't see that title often. Um, and then brought in at Serta Simmons. In all cases, some people have their career, right? They advance within an organization. So they grow up in an organization. They gradually rise through the ranks. In each of these cases, you were brought in for a specific skill set, a specific expertise um, to these companies, kind of as an outsider. I'm curious, when, when you approach that, when you, when you come into a company in that way, how do you analyze your situation? If you look at those three examples, how do you analyze those companies? How do you develop a game plan? Do you have one before you go in? I mean, what, what's your thought process? What's your strategy when you approach these kinds of things? Well, you know, I think, in honestly, all three were very different, uh, yet similar situations. So in the, in the case, uh, chronologically, of, of Toys R Us, um, I had been, as you said, in, um, in an advertising agency called Bazell Worldwide, and I was the, the, man, the uh, managing partner of their uh, New York office and also head of their retail uh, practice worldwide. So any retail clients around the world um, fell into my group. Um, and... During that time, we met with uh, Toys R Us on a couple of occasions. Uh, just to give you a sense of timing, it was about uh, 1999 that I joined, and I was there until it sold to private equity. Um, and I was approached to come in as the first uh, chief marketing officer and a member of the executive committee of Toys R Us corporate, which would, in those days was a Fortune 100 company and, and profitable. I like to always put that asterisk in. When I was there, we made money. Um, not that because of me, but it was a profitable <laughs> company. Um, and, and really the challenge was um, that those were the days, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, where um, just a few years earlier than that, Amazon had really started to make some inroads into the toy business. Uh, Walmart had declared toys as a, as a key category to attract mom into their stores. And um, in many ways, Toys R Us had lost a little bit of its way, uh, became much more of a commodity. Um, than, a, than a, a, a provider, a retailer that uh, really captured the magic of what it did. So um, I was brought in to try and, and help rekindle that. Um, that evolved into some things like um, the Toys R Us Times Square store, because I, I felt that we needed something to make a brand statement that was really about um, the magic of being a child. And for all of us who were around, you know, family, friends of that child to, uh, to really you know, say toys are that, that, that the toys and educational uh, products for kids not a commodity, but it's something that's very important. Um, so we had a lot of fun in those days, but really it was it was to try and get a company, which in those days was a twelve billion dollar retailer, to focus on the most important thing, which was the consumer. And I remember anecdotally that my first meeting at Toys R Us, I uh, I walked into a room with the executive committee. So these were the uh, the eight leaders of businesses, um, everybody with a C title. And the first meeting I had, I walked in and I remember thinking to myself, and I wrote a note that I still have that said, oh, my God, I didn't, in those days, it wasn't O-N. Actually, <laughs> I said, here I am in a company that is uh, target consumer is mom with kids, a mom with kids. And there was a room full of guys with guys. Um, and I said, this is, you know, this is a this is a problem. Right? You know, and the lesson learned for me, Bill, is, is that um, the, the best marketing people and the best merchants have to be able to sort of get out of their own skin 
and, and get into the skin of the people they're trying to, you know, look after and, and sell to. Um, and that was the biggest problem that Toys R Us had. It didn't have an ability really to relate to that mom with kids. So I spent the next six years of my life trying to, uh, to change that. What is that? And then, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no. I guess you wanted, sorry, I didn't answer one of the other ones. And then, you know, the challenge, um, uh, the opportunity to work with Jeff Steeman to go, who is, in my mind, is someone who, you know, even though I'm a bit older than Jeff, I believe you can learn from someone. I mean, clearly, um, he had furniture in his roots. And, and, and Jeff had built a, uh, and continues to build an extraordinarily successful business that is so tight to his concept. It's actually the opposite, where Toys R Us had lost sight of its concept. Jeff is, is absolutely laser focused on what rooms to go stands for and and i think many of the um of the guiding principles and success factors that rooms to go are, are pretty much the same ones that we thought of 30 plus years ago when he started the company um so with jeff it was it was hopefully coming in from the outside fitting into a very tight family um, organization where many of the senior execs at the rooms to go if not all of them had really grown up at that point with jeff um and trying to fit in and and provide you know some some external thinking, but do it in a way that was um, was not in any way threatening or challenging or um, it was sort of homogenous with the way they did it. So and in those days he was you know just um, probably about half of what he is today, and, and and he just continued to grow. And um, it was it was a matter there of just trying to follow Justin because uh, really is that's a very different business than Toys R Us with a lot of different people. We're at, uh, at uh, Rooms to Go. Uh, Jeff Seaman is the guiding light for sure. And then he's got a, a, a line of people who um, who are good, great partners for him to execute, follow the lead. Um, and then, you know, at Curtis Simmons, it was, again, a very different challenge. Uh, Michael Traub, who I had met during my Rooms to Go days, had been brought in to um, transform and, uh, you know, bring both Serta and Simmons together. They were together, but, you know, that was the early stages of that merger, if you will, of, uh, of SSB. And uh, Michael was doing a lot of different things and um, came from outside of the furniture industry um, and certainly the mattress industry. Uh, he and I had become um, good good business friends. And Michael asked me if I would come in and help him as he went through that transformation. Um, and I originally, I was always a consultant to Michael. My official title there was senior advisor to the CEO, and um, I got to uh, just sort of be by his side in, in a lot of different areas, making a lot of progress. Um, and it was, uh, it was something I intended to do originally for a few months and wound up uh, being by his side for uh, three years. Um, you know, again, a very different set of um, challenges, um, but I think we made a lot of progress during, during those times as well. It's interesting. When you talk about your role at Rooms to Go, it sounds like in some ways working with someone who has a very, um, in, in Jeff Seaman, there's a very clear corporate culture there, a very well-established um, cultural dynamic. People understand who's in charge. They understand what the mandates are. And then in your role as special advisor to Michael Traub, it sounds to me like in some ways the rooms to go role kind of helped prepare structurally for how you might have to approach um, what might be considered a position as minister without portfolio. Um, yeah, uh, and, and boy, you couldn't be more polar opposite um, than those two organizations. I mean, 
you know, uh, you're exactly right in how you describe uh, rooms to go and, and just leadership there. Um, and then when Michael walked in, I mean, one Michael was uh, out from outside the industry, which is, as you know, rare um, at companies of that size to bring in outsiders. They typically do come up from within the system or certainly competitively. And then also, um, you know, Ruth, uh, Serta and Simmons were, were, <laughs> were arch rivals um, who were now being pulled to play together. Um, and, you know, factories that were used to competing with each other, with sales teams that were used to competing with each other, with marketing that was used to, uh, to competing with each other. And, and you know, and, and that challenge, and I think that challenge, you know, I've been gone 18 months or so, I think it still exists today. I think it gets further and further away and therefore less and less, but very different. I mean, that one was, uh, was as much as anything uh, um, cultural um, and, and people accepting that uh, things were changing and uh, that, you know, it wasn't about top four mattress suppliers anymore. The two of the top four were, were under one roof and frankly, the other two of the top four were under the, another roof, uh, TSI. Um, the challenge there became, how do we really create a culture where people realize we're all on the same team and, and it's additive um, to be together as opposed to competitive? If I look at those two situations, I go back to your, Toys R Us description, right? A bunch of a room with a bunch of guys in ties, um, kind of requiring cultural realignment. It sounds like what you needed to do at Serta Simmons was cultural realignment. Um, how do you approach that? You know, what when you come into an organization and you recognize and you identify that you need to realign a culture, what are the steps that need to be gone through? Because I think a lot of companies today, we talk about reinvention. If you look at the furniture industry today, there are a lot of companies, even if they've had consistent management, are having to reinvent themselves in this environment. And that means cultural shift. And so I'm curious, given that you have so much experience in this area, how do you approach that in terms of identifying what the leverage points are, identifying what the culture is that you want to instill, and how to start to implement that? What's, what's your process? What does that look like for you? Well, I always start with the people that we're trying to, to sell to. And, and I think that one of the things um, that the furniture industry is not very good at um, is realizing that from manufacturing, you know, sort of the B to B to C to C um, element of it. So, you know, from manufacturer to retailer um, to consumer. And I think that manufacturers in particular um, much better off if they had a much uh, more defined uh, version of how they become relevant with the people who either sit on, sleep on, you know, look at or eat on their products. Um, and I think so. So I think the first thing is determining relevance. And I would say the same thing in a you know, slightly different um, context for retailers as well. So how do I be relevant to people who are going to end of my product? Um, and then two, once I understand how I how I can position myself for relevance and therefore appetite for purchasing, um, then it becomes most importantly from I think a leadership perspective, setting a clear, easily understood, um, and accepted vision for how we're going to get there. So how do I what where's my relevance? What's my vision for fulfilling that relevance? And then how do I how do I orchestrate uh, organization to to follow a single lead. I, I I think that you know a lot of times companies are 
struggling need reinvention. It's because they don't have that clear vision, that clear leadership, that clear sense of purpose um, that is in keeping with what their end users want from them. Um, and I think that uh, it, it's something you have to wake up with like sort of every day. Um, you need consistency uh, um, of leadership and, and consistency of articulating um, what we stand for and, and sort of every single aspect of a company has got to fall in line with that with that vision. Um, and, you know, it, it's difficult to say, but from, from my Toys R Us days, not so much rooms to go, but certainly Toys R Us, SSB and other clients I've worked with over the years, when you see um, sort of fumbling around and, and, and lack of, of really achieving goals, it often relates to the team is just not functioning as a team. And, you know, I've been called, I guess it's not not socially acceptable anymore to be uh, to be a hugger. Um, but I, you know, that that's always been my style is to make sure that, um, you know, the interpersonal skills and and, um, and and sense of this is what we're trying to do. Um, I always I always say to people that it's more important to be 80% right than trying to be 100 because when you try and be 100, you usually sit and sort of spin around and don't do things. So I think I think that those are the, you know, as you look at transformation, it's it's relevance to the consumer, it's clear vision, and then it's outstanding execution as it. Well, that was something, wasn't it? This is Trisha again for Klausner Home Furnishings. From my very first collection, I knew I'd come to the right place, that Klausner understood what I wanted to do with my furniture, how I wanted to share my recipe for comfortable living with the world. Now let's get back to Bill McLaughlin and see what he and his guests have to share with us. How do you, how do you figure out what your relevance is? And, and what I mean is, are, are you very data-driven? Do you start with you know, consumer surveys? Do you start with uh, ethnography? Do you start with you know, looking at past practice? Um, and, I, and I think you have an example around Jeffrey at Toys R Us, right? Um, so I, I'm curious, what, that, what are the, the tangible steps, the actual steps that you take when you're starting to, to try to define relevance? So if I'm a retailer, right, and I want to, I want to go through that, what am I actually, what behaviors am I going to take? What, what steps am I going to take? Well, I think, I think the first thing is, is um, you know, sort of all of the above for the things listed. Um, I think, you know, you can't force consumers today to think the way you do. Um, you need to really understand what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Um, uh, the, the challenges they go through to consumption, obviously, as we started off this conversation, we're living in a time of complete chaos in that process. But, um, but in normal uh, times, I think it's, it's, it is, it's research, it's testing, it's listening. Um, I mean, I, I used to, with that, you know, to, to your Toys R Us example, one of the first things I did in my, in my first six months at Toys R Us is we had 700, and I think it was 12 stores in the United States, and I visited over 500 of them in my first six months. Wow. Um, because I felt that I needed to, you know, and, and what I did wasn't go and do the, uh, the shake hands of the store people, and, you know, the associates, which I did, but it was more, I just sort of hung out in the stores and watched people go through the process, um, uh, watch what they were going through. I mean, and it was, you know, um, and one of the, and then I talked to them, I'd go up to them, hey, I'm the, the new marketing guy at Toys R Us, what do you think of the company? And, and what happened in that world that, that led to what you talked about with, with Jeffrey, was I had these moms in the stores and they were saying, you know, I just remember how I used to love listening to the, to the Toys R Us song. I don't want to grow up on Toys R Us kid, but that had been killed by previous 
um, advertising people because advertising people have this tendency that if it's not new, they get bored with things. So um, here was this legacy um, memory that uh, consumers had, moms had, of the song, I Don't Want to Grow Up, I'm a Toys R Us Kid. And then they said, and, oh, we don't see the giraffe anymore. Um, and Jeffrey, we used to love it. And then I realized quickly that they told me this. I didn't think it through. I mean, I just listened to what people were saying to me. And the answer was is that the perception that today's, those days mom had of Toys R Us was that of themselves being the kid. So everything was good. I mean, they didn't see the problem until they experienced it. So they didn't see, you know, the, un the uncleanliness of the stores or the, the lack of RSA um, you know, friendliness and all that kind of stuff. They walked into the store wanting what their memory was. So, the, the, you know, it's very difficult to do, easy to say. But what I said is let's just give them back the Toys R Us of their, of their childhood um, and pass it on to the next generation. So that meant, you know, reviving the song. It meant but contemporizing it, but making sure they understood it. Um, taking Jeffrey and reinventing him from a two-dimensional cartoon into a, you know, sort of walking, talking um, uh, uh, icon. And then also that sort of led to the thought process with the then CEO to um, let's create this, um, this fabulous emporium of everything that's wonderful about being a child, which evolved into the, the uh, the Toys R Us Times Square store, which until the time that the private equity owners closed it, uh, was the number one attraction for families with kids in New York. Um, so it really was about acknowledging the consumer, giving them back, um, you know, or, or, or trying to fill their aspirations for what Toys R Us was, which wasn't necessarily reality. Well, let me let me just stop there and give you some kudos here. Having grown up not far outside New York and raised a son outside New York, I will tell you that on all of our visits to New York City, the two places that we would invariably go when he was a child were the Toys R Us Herald Square store um, or the Toys R Us flagship, which was absolutely amazing, and FAO Schwartz, which similarly... Um, it's about the experience, right? I mean, that was kind of made iconic in the, the movie Big and the dancing piano or dancing on the piano. So um, never got a chance to thank you for that or thank the people who did that. So since that's you and, and uh, on behalf of, of my son, thanks, Warren. That was very cool. Wow, that's great. And uh, I, I got to say, there's like hundreds of people who made that come, come to life. But, but, you know, even there, there's an example that we learned in, in the Times Square store. You know, when we started out to do this um, or to build it, one of the things that we said is, you know, the, the, the people who really understand their products and how to bring them to life. And we were so tied to intellectual property, like the movie business, obviously, all toy companies do well when a Star Wars comes out because everybody buys the Star Wars toys, right? Um, but one of the things we said is, let's, let's let um, Mattel and Hasbro and Universal Studios and Disney um, bring their products to life in our store so when you took your son to um to the times square store and he saw that you know animatronic um huge uh, dinosaur universal studios put that in um and um the barbie dollhouse uh, built by mattel and you know these i think i think that even as, as sort of pulling it back a bit to the furniture industry one of the things that we 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 could so much learn is i think that Manufacturers have an obligation to um, equip retailers with the 
best ways possible, best product, best design, keeping with consumer um, relevance and demand, um, but also then helping them pull it through the process. And I think that furniture industry is unique. You know, sometimes uniquely fails at that. You know, it's sort of like I'll make it, you sell it, and then none of us talk to each other. And I think if there's if I have a vision for the furniture industry, which we certainly used in the toy industry, um, it's, it's, it's to find a way that we can all get together and make that relevance and that connection with the consumer. Um, so it's not just about direct to consumer people surfing the whole process, but it, that we as an industry really um, focus on the consumer more and, and, and their journey to purchase and the things that are their pain points and their pleasure points and all those kinds of things and, and just kind of talk to each other more. An interesting thing when you talk about that, you talk about the, the brand, you were working with well-established, high-profile brands, right? When you talk about Universal, those are brands. When you worked at Serta Simmons, Serta and Simmons, those are consumer brands. If you ask a consumer, have you ever heard of Serta? Have you ever heard of Simmons or Beautyrest? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. For many furniture stores today, the, the store wants to be the brand. And so how do you achieve the kinds of things that you're talking about in an environment where um, the store is the brand? And, you know, without, I mean, I, I, we can't not reference Rooms to Go. Rooms to Go is the brand, right? I mean, they are the 100%. brand. 100%. So, 100%. Um, I know you're doing a lot of consulting now with with folks in, uh, in both the furniture and the mattress space. And... Uh, so what kind of advice do you have? How do you achieve the kinds of things you're talking about in an environment where you may not necessarily have um, those type of brands to work with? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And I think actually there is a little bit of, I think that the, the you know, I, I, you know, from a personal contact with me, I grew up in the, uh, in the my dad was a mattress and uh, um, upholstery manufacturer in Canada. So I grew up in, in both factories. Um, and I remember in, and in my um, advertising agency days, I had a number of, um, of furniture clients, uh, not outside of the mattress, um, sofas, case goods, that kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, not, well, it's probably a couple of, you know, 20 years ago or so, where you would absolutely go into a furniture store looking for, you know, great brands like Royville, Lane, Enderdon, whatever. Um, and consumers were, were trying to do that. And you're absolutely right. A migration took place where the stores have become the brand, um, and probably, ironically, the last sort of segment of the home furnishings industry where brands are somewhat relevant is in bedding. Um, and I think that um, it, it's so it's it's twofold. I think if I'm advising a mattress company where uh, brands are still somewhat relevant, um, and they got to be very careful because I can see easily not too distant future that they could sort of become homogenous as well if they don't really you know make sure that they're out there you know um, clearly articulating why uh, there's a there's a if out, moving away from the commodity of this sleep which a little bit of did which is a whole other topic um, but as you look at the store being the brand and you're right rooms to go being really the poster child for that amongst others um, you know, it, what, what's it about? It's about consumers wanting to have um, a sense that they trust, um, that they will find what they need, that they will be treated appropriately, um, 
and that um, there is a um, kind of a simpatico with the brand that um, that when they go into a retail store, they 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 believe that they're shopping uh, or, or or shop online too, because I think it's both today. But that they're that they're 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 going to be looked after and and they're going to be pleased with their purchase and that they feel a high degree of confidence in that retailer and therefore the retailer becomes the brand. Um, and I think that, you know, when you look at case goods, when you look at, uh, to a large degree, um, a full street soft line, it, it's absolutely true that you choose where you want to purchase, uh, versus, uh, going out and looking for a specific brand, uh, which is in some respects, I think it's, 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 Kind of, I think that the brands let it get there, um, and um, you know, I think that people uh, as consumers uh, today have a lot more confidence in where they're buying than exactly what they're buying, other than obviously the category. So let's let's take a look a, a little bit at the betting business, um, and I want to talk about disruption. Why do you think that the betting business? was so able to be disrupted by what we call D2C or other people called um, digitally native vertical brands, which is quite a mouthful. Um, in truth, I think because the uh, the major brands, uh, well, twofold. One is, is that in the main, not always, but in the main, um, consumers, and again, go back to talking to consumers, spent a lot of time doing that. Consumers. I, I, the hate word almost came out of my mouth, and I guess it just did. But they really didn't like the experience of buying a mattress in a lot of retail stores. There are exceptions, but that that process of buying um, a mattress physically in a retail store was not a pleasant experience for a lot of people. Um, and I think that the other thing is, is in a world where um, everybody is reliant on their um, their mobile device, their iPad on reviews, um, mattress businesses from all the way back to when my dad was a manufacturer, um, desire to obfuscate, um, the ability for a consumer to comparative shop, um, price shop, um, uh, the, the, the inherent confusion built into the system between manufacturer to retailer to consumer. I think people just sort of said, I just don't know what to do here. Um, I don't know how to buy it. And when I go and I ask for advice, I'm just really not comfortable with the, with the, the advice I'm getting and or the environment I'm in. So then you had, you know, it's arguable. I've had, I know of at least three who said they were the first, but you know, around five, six years ago, several really smart young people who had never, ever been in the mattress business sat around and said, boy, there's pain points in this business. Um, and you know, it, a lot of it is, what do I buy? So it, to me, it is so anti-theoretical um, to say one mattress fits all, which is how a lot of them started. Um, and the only reason in my mind that argument worked because there was such a backlash to all of the, um, the traditional ways of, of purchasing a mattress. Um, and to come out and say that a, you know, um, a great market, I mean, the, the disruptive companies, Casper, Tufts and Beetle, you know, Helix, uh, Lisa, Purple, they are outstanding to really um, understand the, the, you know, the new, um, not the new anymore, but the consumer's journey disproportionately 
navigates through online um, and to offer a simple proposition to say, you don't have to worry about this anymore because we'll take it back um, and we're going to get it to you really fast and we're going to give you a good price. Um, that was the proposition. And I think in a normal way, if those of us, and I come from the legacy side of the business, had done our job, it would have been a lot more difficult to upset the Apple card as much as they did. But the mattress business became a total commodity business, a bad experience business, and one that was not, in my mind, in a large degree, is still not um, very um, sensitive to the consumer's needs. And I think therein lies a lot of opportunity going forward. But the mattress business is the perfect business to be disrupted because customers just didn't like um, the way they were forced to shop. Um, and it became much more about, you know, the um, it, it, even looking at promotional period, it became, there, there was no affinity for or, or sense of uh, why one mattress is worth more than another. I mean, I used to always sit and say, I would, I would love to be in front of 10 consumers who are thinking of buying, you know, um, I don't want to pick on anybody here, but, you know, thinking of buying a $200 mattress online. Um, and a consumer reports article comes out that says that they're as good as um, let's get out of my world of uh, beauty rest black or I come they're as good as the Tempur-Pedic it just it just it doesn't make any sense and the industry to this day has never put that argument forward in a salient way in my mind and, and therein lie the whole opportunity um, you know and, and, and obviously the you know the um, successful D2C brands uh, weren't doing $200 match that was through marketplaces and stuff like that. But but even so, they sort of said, you know, a $900 mattress is just as good. I, do, I don't think that the pushback was as strong as it could have been, and I, and I hope we'll see that. Um, it, and, and, and you can also see the, you know, the D2C disruptive brands that are, are migrating into more choice as well. Good thing. So, you know, we were ripe to be picked, and I think there's a lot of lessons learned in what happened in the mattress category. The other thing is, just to, on that point, it's no matter um, how you look at it, it's still like, I think when I left SS, the industry was saying, and I think now it's, you know, if the projections are that the direct-to-consumer brand disruptors collectively will do 25-ish, somewhere between 25 and 30% of the overall business in mattresses in, uh, in the United States. That still says that 65, 70% of consumers want to go you know, still have well again the world we're living in, but some physical representation still have trust for retailers that have um, where they have an ability to talk to RSAs. Um, so it, it's not like it turned the whole business upside down, but I think think for the future of the mattress business and home furnishings in general, there's a lot of lessons to be learned by why that happened and and how people can respond to it so that um, they can get into to, you know. Um, the consideration set for consumers by understanding why so many said we're not we, still, we don't want to shop the old way we want to shop the new way. I think legacy um, providers, seller manufacturer, can be part of the new way too if it's smart. I want to talk about that lessons to be learned because some of the things that you described as making the mattress industry susceptible, um, the kind of lack of transparency, the desire to make it difficult to cross shop. All of those kinds, some of those kinds of things are true of the furniture business as well, um, and we're starting to see 
some D2C or for lack of, you know, digitally vertical native brands start to come into the furniture space. Um, it hasn't been as disruptive yet, but you can see that momentum and you can see those seeds being planted. So what lessons could the furniture industry take from that and avoid the kind of pain that the, the legacy mattress business has had to suffer. Well, if you were, you know, if you were running a furniture retailer today, or if you were consulting with a furniture retailer today, or even a, a furniture manufacturer who was looking to push back, what's your message? What's what's the strategy? I think that uh, to me, again, starting with the consumer, we as an industry overall speak at people, not with them. The direct to consumer um, industry. Both in you know when you look at companies um, that are doing sofas, they look at companies that okay, across the board they have an, a, an ability, and it's not just because they're digital and they're online and they can have those you know consumer experience dialogue. It's because their entire business is focused on speaking with people, not at them. Um, so I think that the, the the first thing is when you when you think about um, it, it's about simplifying the process. I mean, you know, you talked about rooms to go a few times. A big part of uh, of DNA of rooms to go is exactly lies in the concept is, is we're, we're going to do it all for you. We're going to make it easy for you. We've got decorator assistance, you know, and it's just been that consistency of message. So I think if I were someone looking to combat that, I think um, speaking with people, understanding what the consumer looking for, helping them with their purchase, not confusing, speaking honestly, standing behind uh, what you said, what you put. What you say you'll do, you do. Um, but I, I really think it's, uh, you know, have a habit as an industry of trying to do, to be all things to all people, and it doesn't work anymore. So clear sense of this is what I stand for, this is what you can expect from me, and I am going to deliver on that. Um, whether you're a, a 100,000 square foot store, uh, you know, um, or whether you're a, a 20,000 foot store, or whether you're an online company. The success is, I think, in, in being relevant, being simple, and clearly articulating what you stand for and then delivering on it. Um, and I also think that today, um, and again, today we're in a bit of a cloudy time, but we're going to come out of it. And I think the other thing that's, that's very important is, you know, it's almost like I always affection, so is my age, but um, I always affectionately refer to it's the it's the Wendy's uh, marketing strategy. If you remember when McDonald's was out there, Burger were out there, Burger King was out there, and Wendy's came up with the strategy of it's not one burger, it's not a Happy Meal or a, or a, you know a, a Burger King meal. Have it your way. That has to be strategy. It's what consumers are demanding today. So the have it your way strategy of operating a retail store is. You want to shop online, fine. You want to come into a store, fine. You want to do both, fine. Because you know, uh, disproportionately, people are doing both, particularly in bigger ticket purchases. They want to still see the sofa, feel it. I mean, so I think it's really about how the consumer wants to shop. It's not about us forcing them to shop our way. They are rejecting that across every single category, uh, both in home furnishings and every other consumer durable. So I think that. It, again, it goes back to simple, straightforward, speaking with, not at people, and giving them what they're looking for, not trying to force them they don't want. Does that also relate to um, pricing transparency? 
or, or I mean, there, there is sometimes, I think, a sense with the consumer. And I, I have heard consumers equate shopping for furniture with shopping for a car. You go in and it's a negotiation. Um, is, do you think that that works in a, in a store's favor? Or do you think that that's something that leaves the consumer psychologically always feeling like they could have gotten a better deal or always feeling like, ah, you know, that wasn't really the best price? I mean, what, what's your view of uh, of that, I think that's an old game that is dead. Um, and if it's not dead, it's on its last breath. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Consumers today want to be able to, they need to be able to feel uh, comfort in their purchase. And a big part of that is not only getting what they want, because your assumption would be they're not going to, you know, they're out looking for a blue sectional, not going to convince them to go for a, a, you know, a brown love seat. So, <laughs> Part of what they're looking for, it's, it's fulfilling it, but I think also being credible, um, being um, being someone that they, they trust, standing behind their after sale, after purchase uh, guarantees, warranties, uh, credibility is really important. Um, and I think in many ways, even the you know old school kind of salesmanship of the RSA is, is that people are just saying no, I don't want that anymore. I want to go in. I want to find what I'm looking for. I want to trust you that that you're going to look after me. I don't want to feel like uh, like you know. I think everyday low pricing, um, or, or you know, the everyday pricing um, is going to become more and more important. And standing behind things, and you know, the, and the and whole other thing is is uh, you know social relevance and and being a company that people um, believe is good for their communities. I think I think there. I know you haven't asked me about. This, go on about that for hours, but, you know, the furniture industry is still um, a relevant part of, of the community, particularly those stores that have physical presence. Um, community relevance is really important today, and just just being good people. Um, and I think I think in many ways, when you look at regional and independence, for example, that's a place where they can elevate the game um, and just be, you know, if you get the right product, right price, credibility, Great shopping experience, and oh, by the way, we're also good folks to deal with. There's a there's a huge win there, and chains can do that too. It sounds like a, a good place to plant a flag, right? I mean, you spoke at the leadership conference. Remember Michael Grossman, who uh, who has one store in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and he you know he wanted to be the local guy. He wanted to own right that circumference around his store, and whether that's inviting people to come trade in prom dresses or having kind of events. It's, it's making yourself an integral part of the community. Yeah. And you know, it, 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 it's so important. I think, and I think that, you know, chains can do that too, because it, 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 it comes down to the trading area you're in. Um, direct to consumer folks can do that too. It's about, you know, we're, we, as, we, we as human beings, which at the end of the day, I mean, no, this is what I believe it's about people. It really is about people. Um, and people, have, we're evolving, and, and, and these this chaotic time we're living is only going to exacerbate that you know, that change. So I think understanding what people are going through, what they're thinking, you know, being the, the, the provider, the retailer, the manufacturer, whatever that that sort of you know gives that group hug to people uh, without ever touching them physically says, you know what, we are going to be there for you. Um, we we understand what you're going through. We're not going to pressure you, but when you're ready and you want it, it's it's done. We're going to just treat you the way you want to be treated. We're going to speak 
with you, not at you. We're going to stand by what uh, behind what we what we do with you. Um, and and oh, by the way, we're good people to deal with because we understand not only what's going on, but we care about the communities and the worlds we live in. Um, and do it in a in a really meaningful way. I think I think relationships um, with with end users, um, or it's not even relationships with them because it's hard to get it down. Obviously, the one on one or one on a thousand. But making people feel like you're relevant in their lives. Um, when I was in the advertising business, um, probably the thing I believed in most. And I have a not to pitch it, but I'm a work. I've been working on a book called Share of Heart, and the real simple theory to share of heart is you know traditional marketing marketing always taught us you want to get people to to think of you so you know, share of mind you want them to purchase from you so share of wallet but my theory has always been but if i can ever get them to like i got the game and i think that we as a in the furniture industry really could use a little bit of share of heart um and and when people achieve it you just see their success and share of heart is not like this it doesn't have to be this I love these people because that's unrealistic. But I, you know, uh, heart is about trust. It's about affinity. It's about just you know believing in people. It's it's when you get that emotional connection versus just a commodity. When you write that book, let me know. I want to read that. That's going right on right on the top of my my reading list. I think that's a, that's a great title. Share of heart. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking some time to uh, to sit down today. If people want to hear more from Warren Cornbloom, please sign up to attend the Furniture Today Betting Conference. That's uh, bettingcon.com. Uh, or you can go to the Furniture Today website, look at our uh, events tab and sign up. And uh, you can hear more from the very, very savvy Mr. Cornbloom. Warren, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Bill, and, and also, you know, thanks for uh, for what you and uh, the folks at Furniture today do. I think uh, it's very important having these kind of conversations. Not so much that anybody has all the answers, but I think it's important for us to realize that uh, we need to talk it through. Here we go. Well, you know, we'll have to come back on the other side of some of this and, and try to analyze it and see because uh, things change so quickly these days. It's it's hard to get a sense of of what might be next. Yeah. But just focus on that consumer. They're the ones we're going to call it. Just, you know, uh, the, the thing that uh, I know you wrapped up, so I'm keeping you going. <laughs> the thing that just, it, my mind just keeps working that way. But, you know, the thing that, that I was, uh, it, there's just so many people when you talk to them today and from sort of all socioeconomic areas that are, you know, as we get into three months, four months, five months of this, the, you know, the, the, my biggest fear is that there's a, there's a cloud that started out of blocking a little bit of sun and it's getting darker and darker and darker and i um i just uh, really hope that soon enough um that, that, that the dark clouds don't overwhelm people out there and that um you know this uh, this period of assumption that we started on pent up demand and all that that we haven't talked about but um sort of around memorial day i i just to me it's, it's where is this going to level out and i think that um realizing that can offer a little bit of a ray of sunshine through those dark clouds in the industry, be it socially or be it by providing things. Retailer or retailer, um, it'll pay benefits for all of us. Well, I, I think that actually is a really great kind of summation, a summary thought, which is keep the focus on the consumer. Good times or bad, 100%. keep the focus on the consumer. 100%. 
that's all you, that's at the end of the day if they don't come in they don't do they don't respond none of us are here anymore thanks so much warren i appreciate it it's been great thank you